You are listening to Mommying While Muslim Podcast, where hosts Uzma and Zeba share their personal stories of mommying in a post-9-11 world. This podcast is designed with the Muslim American mom in mind, so grab a cup of coffee and pull up to their table. everyone. Welcome to another episode of Momming Well Muslim Podcast with your co-hosts Zeba Hassan and Uzma Jafri. This is Uzma. Assalamualaikum everyone. And this is Zeba. First of all, start off by saying this is adult topic for the next couple of weeks. So likely not good for our younger, our younger audiences. Um, because uh, we're going to be talking, doing mommy talk now. So I just wanted to say that before we we delved into the topic today. I was used to hate that when the parents kicked us out of the room because it was mommy talk time. But yeah, you 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 don't want them to be here You're right like, now Let's unless they are. Let's not do that. <laughs> I totally understand that, that I'm a mother. So, so what's up with you this week? So we have been, you know, the tail end of basketball season before our next one. We've just been super crazy busy. And, you know, I've been chatting with you a little bit about the, um, my, my nine-year-old having a little bit of anxiety as he likes to call it or stress. So losing some sleep over that mm-hmm. and obviously delving a little bit into our um, repertoire on mommy one Muslim group page to get some feedback and information, because quite frankly, I don't have all the answers and every kid is different. Um, so I, I appreciate that we have um, access to a lot of the resources. So doing some research on that right now, that's been kind of the stress or uh, the focus of my last week is kind of giving him the tools he needs to get through um, some of these more anxious periods. What about you, Asma? What have you been up to? Oh, gosh. You and I were touching base on a personal basis um, and trying to differentiate between our home lives, our mom lives. We have so many different hats that we wear um, and being able to provide boundaries within ourselves and um, so that we can kind of do all the things that we do. How how has that been for you? Because I know it's been a little bit of a struggle for you this week. Yeah, I know. When when we put a lot on our plates, a lot of times as moms, we get the uh, constructive criticism from other folks. We're doing this to ourselves because we have such trouble saying no, because there's so many opportunities to do good things and so much work needs to be done um, that we just keep adding and adding and adding. And so February is already a very short month and there's a lot going on professionally, personally, and then with the podcast that we're doing. And I'm excited about all of it. I don't want to say no to any of it. But but it's a matter of, you know, establishing clear and concise boundaries that say, okay, this is when I can do this and this is when I can do that. And this is when I can clearly not achieve what maybe somebody wants me to do and be able to say no comfortably. And I'm glad that I have you in my life so that we can have those boundary conversations very openly and honestly and set them up and still continue to do work that is important to us and that we're passionate about. Exactly. Because at the end of the day, we're actually friends first and we want people to know that. So I'm always like, Uzma, like, I want to put my friend hat on and and not, this is not about work. Let's talk about what's going on with you. Um, so I think we developed a really pretty cool system between texting personal stuff and then WhatsApping professional stuff. So we're creating our own internal boundaries, which I think every mom, parent, um, person 
needs to be able to do in order to fully function um, to the best of our ability. So I, I love that we were able to have that frank conversation so that we can continue to do good works without like literally falling dead asleep every single night in a coma. What's our soapbox for the week, Osma? Our soapbox is democracy officially died. Um, for those of you who followed the impeachment trial, we knew it was going to happen. We could smell it from a mile away that the GOP was not going to find their president in um, president guilty of uh, collusion, rigging elections, and of uh, strong arming foreign governments to comply with his personal political gain. Um, we knew it was going to happen. There was one Republican that stood up to one of the two charges against the president, and that was Mitt Romney out of Utah. Go Mitt. I'm 50-50 on that. So now our job as Muslims, as voters, as participants in what's left of our democracy is to get behind the right candidate. My vote is for Bernie. I hope y'all get involved. Make sure you check your voter registration because a lot of our registrations were expunged the last election. Even those of us who um, elected for voting or mail-in ballots, we were taken off the list. This happened in Arizona in particular where voter registration fraud is rampant. It's happening in your states. Please make sure you pay attention and uh, double check your registration. I would say every couple of months until November. And I do have to say, like, I saw a meme this morning, which gave me goosebumps that essentially said the appeal process is um, is coming. It's starting and you've been called up for jury duty, everybody. And that's Tuesday, November 3rd. So make sure you go and um, get your get the vote out, whoever you whoever you choose to vote for. Um, this is one of our basic rights that we have as American citizens and exercising our right to vote is the number one way we can show that. So um, Uzma, we are continuing with our um, topic for the month of February, which is um, uh, intimacy and creating intimacy in a Muslim household. And I think you have a really um, good relationship with our next guest coming on. And I would love if you can introduce her to everybody. Yes. I am super excited to introduce Ustada Sabah Sayyid, who um, holds a bachelor's degree in Islamic studies and ijaza in Quranic hifs recitation, which is memorization um, in Egypt from Sheikh Muhammad al-Hamzawi. She works to empower Muslim women through correct teachings of Islam and is a pastoral counselor for marriage, family, women, and youth issues. She's also the author of An Acquaintance, a YA novel that belongs in our bookshelf, so make sure y'all get a copy. She has been involved in the Muslim community since 1995 through her MSA, which is how I know her. Um, and then as founding member of the Texas Dawa Conference, which if you've never been is usually um, during Christmas time in Texas, I want to say in Houston, I have never had the opportunity, unfortunately, to attend, but everybody that goes talks and talks about it. It is like uh, a supreme Islamic knowledge kind of conference. In 2002, Sabah organized and hosted the very first Muslim Women's Conference in Houston. She's also a writer for MuslimMattersOrg.org, which is one of the oldest and most cited online resources since 2007, in fact, for articles related to Muslim faith, politics, and current issues with contributors from all over the world, reputable names, and some just you know, household folks that have experiences they want to share. Um, it was actually founded by her husband, Ahmad Sheikh. Um, I always say behind every successful man is a really remarkable woman, and that is Saba. Most important to me about Saba is the fact that, you know, we all grow up learning Quran. Usually, if you're 
a subcontinental person like we are, we um, learned to recite very young. And so it wasn't until college uh, more than 20 years ago that Saba was my Tajweed teacher or my pronunciation teacher and taught me how to recite Surah Fatiha, the opening chapter of the Quran, which we say 17 times a day. So I um, I attribute that to her and my um, little bit of memorization from the 30th juz or the 30th um, section of the Quran, I attribute to Saba and her teaching um, during our university days. So Jazakallah khair for that and welcome to the show, Saba. Welcome, Saba. Thank you so much for, I mean, with all the accolades, I mean, I'm just so excited that you're on the show today. Coming from, where are you calling in from today? Because let's just say we had to jump through some hoops to get you on this show. Where are you today, Saba? Assalamualaikum. First of all, let me thank you guys for having me over today. Um, <clears throat> I am right now in the Middle East. I'm in Qatar. <laughs> so I'm eight hours ahead of you guys. It's my night time and I will be straight going to bed after this. Perfect. I, so I definitely appreciate <laughs> Thanks that. Thanks for staying up for exactly. us. Exactly. <laughs> we know how that is. We know how that is. Yeah. Yeah, and I do have a five-year-old, but it's fine. So, Saba, how long have you been an expat? Uh, it's going to be 11 years this summer. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah, but I'm moving back. I'm moving back this summer, yeah. For good? Yep, I'm coming home. <laughs> oh, nice. So, uh, yes. Yeah. So now, so now we're going to kind of get into the meat of what it is that we have you on for. Um, and essentially, it's about the Islamic uh, perspective of sexual intimacy. Osma tells me that you actually teach a class about this particular topic. Can you explain a little bit of a, about what it is that you teach specifically? Well, I, I do workshops on, on intimacy and also um, on the female, sexual, uh, female sexuality. Uh, but then recently we did like a series of videos and in those videos uh, we, we took different topics and we tried to make them like a short, it's not a lecture, it's like a discussion. So like uh, about 10 minutes, each video is 10 minutes long. It's a separate topic, something related to either um, intimacy or it's about like female sexuality because to be honest, female sexuality is perhaps one of the most misunderstood topic, not only among Muslims, I think, I believe, you know, also like in every faith, it's just misunderstood. Why do you think, I totally 100% agree with you that there is this huge misconception, we don't want to talk about it, it's a taboo topic. Why do you think cross-culturally that is the case, where people don't want to talk about female sexuality? Um, so we did some research, you know, going uh, back. The, f the first webinar I hosted on this topic was actually, I was just looking back at the dates, was exactly six, year six years ago in 2014. And to, to prepare for that webinar, we researched from the both, both European uh, perspective and also the Eastern perspective. And what I learned is, um, you know, going back almost 50, 75 years ago when there was this belief in Europe that women don't even possess a soul. So when some, you know, when something mm. doesn't even have a soul, how can it feel anything else? So hence, no desires, no um, lust, no sexual desires, no need to sexually satisfy. Uh, that's where the concept, I think, originated from and that we can dig deeper that why was there even a concept that do women have souls or not? Um, 
which you could call you know like the endocentric uh, concept and it, it's funny because i don't know if you have watched this movie or not it's called hysteria and it deals basically with that particular topic that the um you know for the non-muslims why do why did they believe at one point that um, women don't have any sexual des desires hence there's no need to sexually satisfy them then in the east Honestly, I don't know where it originated from, but the concept in the East is that sex is for men. Um, it's, uh, it's a duty for women. It's bad. And the good women, they don't, um, they don't desire sex. They don't think about sex. They don't want sex. And it's something that's only um, ever desired or thought about by women who don't, um, you know, basically prostitutes. So when, when I deal specifically with the Muslim crowd, this is the, the challenge that we fa face, is the, the years and years and years of brainwashing among women that sex is not meant for, for women. It's meant for men. It's a chore and a duty for women. But what's the Islamic perspective on uh, a woman's desire and fulfillment of that desire? Like, what's her right? The Islamic perspective is that Islam completely and fully uh, acknowledges and realizes the uh, necessity of female sexual satisfaction. It acknowledges women female sexual desires completely. Um, and there are multiple, multiple proofs, um, uh, textual proofs uh, within our religion. Um, the Quran does not specify something, it, it does not have anything specific, but from the life of our Prophet Muhammad, we, uh, we, we learn a lot of narrations where he uh, basically um, emphasized on how important it is to um, sexually satisfy women. So, if you know, um, I'm just going to quote a couple of them. In one of them, like for instance, he, um, uh, he advised men that um, if whenever you reach out to your wives, whenever you have sex with your wife, make sure that there is enough fondling, there's enough kissing, there's enough um, cuddling and, and, you know, just foreplaying before engaging into the act itself. And of course, foreplay, why was there an emphasis on foreplay is because foreplay leads to the female climax. In another narration, he was basically asked about practicing um, coitus interruptus, which is a very uh, traditional term for basically an early withdrawal. And the prophet didn't really um, like it. And it's funny because this it's it's uh, it, this is something that I have always heard this narration being quoted, but it was never explained fully in what sense he didn't like it. You hear the you know the male scholars always quoting this in the sense that you know about the birth control or encouraging people to have kids, but then if you continue reading the same narration, the prophet said in this that make sure that your wife is okay with it and it does not take away from her pleasure. Which indicates that, you know, if a man is going to have an early... Like that she's climaxed before you do exactly, that. Exactly, because yeah. if he's going to withdraw early, she's most likely not going to end up having her climax. So the, the reason of not liking it or discouraging it is because the woman might, it might take away from her climaxing. And there's, I'm just going to quote one more, so, you know, just to uh, make my point is... Um, there's another hadith in Al-Jamay, and I'm going to read it from here because it's really um, thorough, um, in which the Prophet is saying that when one of you has intercourse with his spouse, 
then let him be truthful towards her. And then there's an explanation of why he used the word truthful. But then he goes on and he says, then if he fulfills his need before her, before her need is fulfilled, let him not rush her until she is fulfilled. So I think it's pretty specific and I cannot be more direct and more um, specific about this, that it is um, a man's duty, basically. And one of the reasons why that he, the Prophet used the word truthful is because it was an indication of being truthful to his proclaimed love for her is that he sexually satisfies her. And that's actually one of the grounds for divorce, right? When a woman can request divorce in Islam is if she's not sexually satisfied. Wow, that's interesting. So that goes to show you like how many, how much right, quote unquote rights that Muslim women have within a, a, a marriage that I don't think a lot of like um, even Muslim counterparts, let alone our non-Muslim counterparts really um, know that we have specific rights um, within our marriage and apparently even being sexually satisfied is one of them. And the fact that it can be grounds for divorce tells you how much of an importance it can play within a relationship. Yes, it's a, uh, there has to be no other reason for a woman to ask for divorce. If that's the only reason she has that she's not sexually satisfied. And we know that in the time of the prophet, um, there was a woman who came to the Prophet and she complained about her not being sexually satisfied. And um, then the Prophet called her husband and he said, give me some time, let me work on, on my issue, whatever issue he had. Um, and the Prophet granted him some time, you know, with the permission of his wife. Um, he failed to, uh, you know, recover from whatever he was going through. And then, the, you know, the woman came back to the Prophet and he granted her a divorce. So, and now we are talking about the companions of the Prophet who were like the best of the people. So it's not like he was mistreating her in any other way. It's not like that he, she had any other issue with him except that she was sexually dissatisfied. And that was the ground to, um, you know, grant her divorce. Culturally, I just want to point out because, you know, we struggle with this issue a lot among um, Muslim women, unfortunately, is some somewhere at some point culture took over and culturally uh, parents or the elders or the society members or the so-called religious clerics, you know, they started discouraging women from asking for divorce based on this because <clears throat> they're, you know, the... <clears throat> their first uh, um, objection would be, he's a good provider, he's a good husband, he's a good supporter, he's a good father. So basically just, you know, be patient, be a good woman, be a pious wife. But Islamically, religiously, piety is not defined by how um, a woman is able to live with a unsatisfied sexual life. And, and, and the truth of the matter is, you're the expert, Sabah, uh, when you have the sexual intimacy within a relationship, that creates a deeper intimacy um, within a marriage. Do you find that that to be truthful or the case in um, the couples that you've dealt with? Yes, definitely, because sex is a language of is one of the languages of love. So when um, a couple is married happily and they're uh, you know they don't have any other issues going on with them the whole point of, of sexual intercourse is basically to, um, it's one of the manifestations of the love that the husband and the wife share with each other. 
So, you know, the term making love basically comes from that concept is that when two people love each other and they're married to each other, they make love to each other. And it's a far more deeper bond than just, you know, like a mechanical uh, uh, function that happens between a husband and a wife where one of the spouse is left unsatisfied. Right. Because you're physically for a moment in time, one person. Can you talk a little bit, Saba, about um, the feminist revolution? And I know I've heard you say you're not a feminist, but I'm going to be clear. I totally am. But I wanted to hear what your thoughts were on the feminist revolution and the sexual independence of women and how it's applicable within a Muslim marriage. That I'm not a feminist because I personally don't like labels, but I, I mean, people call me feminist. They label me feminist maybe because I am really outspoken about <clears throat> female rights and women's, um, you know, uh, their rights and their place in the society. This is not a something, a new phenomena that's happening. This is not happening because women have somehow, you know, newly found their place in, in um, their sexual relationship with their spouses. No, this is a... Um, this is a desire, this is a need that was put into by our creator from the moment we were created. And hence, that's why he has recognized it. You know, the God, the creator, he has acknowledged it and recognized it and has made it obligatory upon the husband to satisfy, you know, sexually satisfy his wife. So I disagree that this is something, if you know, feminist revolution or something newly. This was, this has always existed. And perhaps that's why there was not um, any uh, like strong need for women to demand this at the time of the prophet, for instance, because it was like all other needs, like the woman's need of uh, being fed or being clothed or having a, a you know house. So this was something like common sense, and somehow somewhere. Um, the culture, I, I, I want to say that perhaps the Indian Pakistanis, you know, the Desi crowd adopted it from Hinduism because Hinduism also believed at one point that women don't have souls. And, you know, that's why, you know, they were uh, like if you dig down deeper in their traditional religion, that they, the wives were to be burned with their husbands and, you know, all that stuff. So maybe that's where when the Muslims were living with alongside with Hindus, maybe this is the concept they adapted at that time. And then the culture basically took over and, and people forgot about the whole uh, the female rights of their sexual satisfaction. Female, you know, having their basically one of their fundamental um, human rights, like the, the, you know, the need to have food, the need to, uh, to sleep, the need to wear clothes. See, this, is, this goes in the same category, is that they have sexual needs, they have sexual desires that need to be satisfied. This is not something that only belongs to men. Just like all the other rights that were taken away from women and Muslim women, I think this is one of, one of those. I agree. I think it's not just um, other religions or other traditions where um, Islam was spread, you know, that combined with the very Eurocentric understanding of women and their sexuality, their personhood, even their humanity, as you spoke to. And then, you know, the post-colonial era, all of that affecting um, 
Muslims across the globe and changing the authentic tenets and teachings of fundamental Islam, which is such a scary term in the media, fundamentalist Islam now, but fundamentalist Islam gave us these rights 1500 years ago. And it was outlined very clearly during the life of Muhammad and I think perverted through time and through cultural baggage, which is why I love that we were born and raised in this country where we can separate the two and we can understand the um, authentic teachings of Islam like free of you know all of that culture now the caveat is i think our kids have less of that than we do because we still had um parents who were immigrants who brought along some of that cultural baggage so can you speak to some of that cultural baggage that our parents dealt with and possibly passed on to us um yeah i mean i come from the same background and you know we both have um indian pakistani parents so the hence the same baggage that we were raised with um and and you're right that our parent our children don't have that baggage. Um, and right now, <clears throat> I might not have see I might not have seen that as clearly as one of the the uh, benefits of living overseas for past eleven years, is that I really learned to appreciate the Islam we have in the U.S. Specifically in the U.S. I'm not even going to say in Europe. Uh, and you know, I don't want to prolong the discussion, but yes, it's uh, it's it's more it's it's organic in, in in America. It's it's purified from the cultural beliefs. There is a, a more um, clear vision about what is Islam and what is culture. Because I see a lot of it here now, living in the Middle East, and now that I um, make uh, uh, frequent trips to Pakistan as well, so I see a lot of. I just see culture. And, and a little bit of religion here and there. So yeah, our kids are growing up, they have this advantage of filtering and um, whatever you might wanna call social media has its, uh, you know, uh, whatever negatives, but there are a lot of positives also that has also helped filter out religion from, from the culture. And because, you know, you and I, we were, we were able to we were able to separate the religion from the culture on our own as we grew older and as we were exposed to the more raw, more organic Islam in U.S. Um, I think we were able to deliver it better to our kids as well. So speaking of which, um, talking about kids, uh, you're also a mom of four, um, and we get this question all the time. How, given your expertise, do you broach the concept of sex with your children? How did you introduce the introduce it to them? And it seems like you probably have an open relationship. One and two. The other question we get a lot is, okay, I'm just going to say it out there, and you're going to see me turn red. But what is the concept of masturbation in Islam, and where do you stand on that? As for sexual education for the children, I actually wrote a whole series of articles about 12 years ago. It's posted on Muslim Matters. It, it is called sexual education. Um, and it's uh, uh, it's not as thorough as I, you know, as, as I wanted it to be, but it gives a general idea of how you can approach your kids with the sexual education. And I have always been a believer and, a, you know, um, a very outspoken um, supporter of parents giving the sexual education to their children themselves, not rely on anybody else, not even any family member or teacher or anyone else or an imam. It's your job. You are the parent. You give birth to them. 
this is one topic that you have to deliver yourself. Don't trust anyone else with this topic. And, and so, yes, I, I gave them um, to my daughter, to my son, and now to my third daughter. Um, I taught them about sex, sexual stuff, desires, you know, their uh, periods, menstruation, uh, red dreams, whatever you might, you know, there is. I taught them myself. I'm sure they enjoy um, that conversation with you. <laughs> no, uh, it was, it, 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 the first conversation was <laughs> always, always awkward. It's always awkward, right? And... <laughs> it's always awkward. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it, it is. Yeah. It's always awkward, but then they kind of I have two sons up. coming. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I always straight up take them back to the Quran always. And, you know, just, uh, just like open up the verses where Allah talks about sex and, you know, like, it's okay. Like, you know, exposing your private parts to your, to your spouse and all that stuff. And I'm like, look, this is how God made it. This is how it is. It's not gross. It's not disgusting. It's something that, you know, um, that's there. And it's a part of it's a part of life. It's you know it's it's a part of you. And even though you might not feel it right now, even though the girls are gross or the boys are gross right now, but at some point you are gonna um, want that. So that's how it starts. And then um, basically it's breaking the ice. Once that once that's done, then they just keep coming back with their questions and stuff. Um, and then as they grew older. Um, I actually did not feel the necessity or the urgency of teaching my kids how important it is um, to understand female sexuality and the sexual satisfaction until six years ago when there was like a lot of seminars and um, classes were being given in, in especially in the US by uh, you know some of the from the male perspective. And a lot of things that were said about female sexuality were completely and totally like um, bizarre. Um, and, and I was reached out by a lot of sisters, by a lot of girls in the US. Um, that's how that, that's what prompt, you know, like basically encouraged me to do the first webinar that's posted on Muslim Matters um, back in 2014. And then I basically sat down my kids and I told them, I'm like, look, I don't know uh, that this is a misconception, but here it is, female have sexual desires. And I told my son, you better satisfy your wife. And I told my daughter that you better demand the satisfaction from your husband. Um, and, you know, don't feel shy about it. This is a part of your life, just like if some if your spouse is going to keep you hungry and you're going to demand food. This is exactly like that. And I think this is how we should we should empower our children, we should empower our daughters, and we should educate our sons. That's our job as parents. I'm loving that. I'm loving that so much. I'm sweating bullets that you're putting that on our shoulders, like as a conversation we have to have. But I'm really uh, appreciating that experience so that I can take it to my kids my one daughter and my three boys. How are you feeling, Zibo? No, I mean, uh, two out of the four have already gotten the talk, and I agree with Seba. We're very, I mean, I've spoken about this in the past. Um, we're a very open family in the sense that if you're old enough to ask me, you're old enough to get the full nitty-gritty of, um, and I don't hold back. I mean, I really just don't. I agree with you, Seba. Like, you need to talk about it. Um, and when your kids feel comfortable enough to come with you to you with these types of, um, in general, quote unquote, uncomfortable topics, I feel like, uh, 
you know, perhaps the, the, the communication is open. Um, and we do talk about it openly, sometimes a little too openly. Um, whereas my daughter asked me very specific questions and <laughs> I try to keep it in generic terms. Um, but you know, it, I, I feel like in general, it should be talked about and, um, you know, there's no, there should be no stigma attached to it because in a halal setting, it's a very beautiful thing. And we need to take our own uh, cultural bias away from it so that we can um, really benefit from what the intention of it was supposed to be. You know, don't fool yourself into thinking that if you um, are just going to somehow evade question or somehow, you know, use hidden terms or something just for your own. Um, that's basically parents just satisfying um, themselves. It's all available out there on the Internet, in the books, among the friends, on the TV. There is no way anything is hidden anymore. You name it, it's out there. Oral sex, masturbation, um, you know, even BDSM, the, the, those, those practices of uh, chaining and stuff. And mm-hmm. it's in young adult books that are being read by like 10 or 11 year old girls. I just read a series along with my daughter and my daughter just turned 13. And I was just like, oh my God, you know, it's, it's, a, it's not even considered like a, uh, the, the sexual rating, if I was just going to look at the sexual rating of the book, it's not even there. The book has everything in it. In a, you know, like not in explicit terms, and that's probably why it's not like being warned as like, you know, there's sexual content in it, but everything is there. So the kids already know it. They know more than, than the parents know. So it's just best to just openly talk about it. I agree with that. And that also takes away the stigma too, right? Like it takes away the stigma. It takes away, it puts the power back into their own hands when they can control their narrative. And if they can talk about it with their parents openly, you can, you know, take away that, that negativity that sometimes is associated because it's not supposed to be a negative thing. It's not, you know what I'm saying? So I agree with you. They, yeah. Quite frankly, they have it in their palm of their hands if they have to cell phones. Let's just be real. So I would much rather be able to go to my kids and say, and, and by the way, pornography and these types of things, also talking openly about them, because guess what? They do have access to that, whether we want to admit it to ourselves or not. And they have to understand and know that that's not necessarily what women want or you know and and we have to have those frank conversations with them i have two things when i when i would ask questions you know it was kind of like what saba speaking to your point that parents are just satisfying their own probably personal anxieties about these conversations and so i got lied to a lot and i realized after i got married it's like that's not what happened why didn't you just talk the truth <laughs> like what did you think i wasn't works. gonna <laughs> it, that's like you you should have told me to go look it up in a book then if you didn't want to tell can, me, but like I, lying, you know, I, I spent three, four years this, thinking this is true and it wasn't. Can I share a story to that? I, and I'm just going to lay it out there. A, I was in first grade, still remember this, and a boy kissed me on the playground. Yes, scandalous, everybody, but it happened. 
I thought I was pregnant and I was going to be a parent and first grade <laughs> because we were taught like, if this happens, this, and I literally was up all night being like, what am I going to do? I'm six years old thinking I'm going to be a mom. And I had no idea. <laughs> and we didn't have that conversation and it was so much unnecessary stress. But, um, so speaking to your point, like we were lied to a lot and as a result, I had a lot of misinformation. Yeah. I mean, I had the same situation where, um, Saba, in the past we've had an episode on uh, sexual trauma and I uh, was very straightforward about, you know, uh, sexual abuse happening to me. And I thought growing up that I had to marry the person who assaulted me, like my, until I was... 13. So from four to 13, I thought I had to marry this person because that's what happens in the movies, right? Guy rapes girl, girl has to marry him. And no, I hadn't been raped, but I didn't know the difference between rape and what happened to me. So I thought, oh, this is the person I have to marry. And when I was 13 and had sex ed for the first time, I told my mom, I don't, is there any way I can get out of this? And that's when she was like, are you crazy? You don't have to marry that jerk. What's wrong with you? So, you know, again, it's just all these things that we don't understand because we don't have the right conversations. And I kind of wanted to circle back to the uh, part of the question that Zeba asked you about masturbation, Islamic perspectives on it. And then last week we talked about sexual devices in the bedroom. Could you speak to those two things? Um, yes, definitely. Sorry, I forgot to talk about masturbation. So masturbation, basically, um, real quick, uh, from a fiqh perspective, uh, there are three opinions. First opinion, and I'm just going to say it not in any particular order, the first opinion that it's, it's forbidden um, unconditionally. Under no circumstances, it is allowed. Um, I don't know any proof for that, the, what is the proof that the scholars quote over this, but this is an opinion that, you know, um, we had heard initially and that's what we thought. We all believed that that was the only opinion, but there are other opinions. The other, the second opinion is, is that it's uh, forbidden um, conditionally. So if there is a chance that by performing masturbation, a person can save themselves from a bigger uh, harm, some a bigger problem, then it is allowed. And then the third opinion is is that masturbation is allowed. There is no um, there is no proof textually that it is forbidden. And to be honest, there is no proof textually that it is forbidden. Um, and you can see that I am of the third opinion or inclined to the second opinion. But there is absolute. I have not found any. Um, reason to believe that it is forbidden unconditionally. So the third opinion, even one of the very famous scholars, Imam Ahmed, even said that it's like basically, you know, how you clean your nose is just like that. Um, as long as there is no pornography or, or any other uh, clearly forbidden outlets are involved. So, and that goes both for men and women, because you have to understand that all the rulings in Islam are equally for men and women um, together, except uh, otherwise uh, is specified. So if there's a certain ruling which is different for women, like for instance, you know, some law or something, then it's always specified. But if there's always just one general ruling, then it applies to both, which uh, for a lot of people, shocking that women could even desire masturbation because according to them women don't have sexual desires but no they do um and um so so yeah and for women if they want to use any devices for that reason 
there is no uh, prohibition. And that goes back to the rule of the thumb, um, which any student of knowledge would tell you from any um, sect of Islam, there's a rule of thumb. When it comes to acts of worship, everything is forbidden unless otherwise it has been shown to us through the prophet or you know through the textual proof that it's okay. For any other action that is not an act of worship, it's allowed. So the general ruling, the first ruling that it takes for any other thing which is not like an like a prayer or you know like uh, like an act of worship is that it's allowed unless otherwise there's a t textual proof to prohibit it. So whenever we talk about masturbation or we talk about you know um, sex toys or we talk about different I don't know positions of sex or whatever, the general ruling, the first rule of thumb is is that it's allowed unless otherwise specified. So the only two things that are not allowed are is the anal sex and the sex during um, menstruation or postpartum bleeding. Other than that, any sexual act is allowed as long as, you know, halal means are used. And, and, and as long as both, both partners, yeah, exactly. I was going to say, as long as both par partners are consenting, then I, um, I, I definitely agree with you. That was, that was definitely eye-opening and has answered a lot of questions that people have put forth, um, including my own, to be honest with you. <laughs> and I'm, I'm just going to add a little bit more thing to this. Um, it's the same ruling that takes for oral sex as well. There is no textual proof that prohibits oral sex. So um, that's allowed. It's it's uh, for both men and women. It's completely allowed. There's no prohibition. Um, and so as you know, the other practices which our youth ask a lot, the BDSM, the um, role playing or whatever, is that all of that is allowed. There's so many women right now that are breathing a sigh of relief. <laughs> My feminist heart is really happy and I'm like, Saba, why didn't you teach this class 20 years ago? Because you would have saved me so much grief in my 20s. We have, like, from our, um, our age group and from your age group, we have, I deal with so much trauma um, with the Muslim, especially, you know, among the Muslim couples, um, the, the intimacy issues, because the lies you were talking about, you know, you're not the only one, a lot of, Indian, Pakistani, and even Arab girls were lied about the whole sexual stuff. And they were traumatized with their intimate life with their husbands and hence the problems. And it takes multiple, multiple, multiple sessions to just even get them to start thinking that sex is not bad, that it's not, it's not going to make them shameless or, you know, um, what do you call it, immodest if they actually participate in the intimate life with their husbands. So the effect of it um, are enormous, and unfortunately, it affects um, not just their intimate life, but their, you know, to some extent, even their faith as well. And I'm hoping and I'm praying that our coming generation is um, a lot better than what we were uh, when we got married. I mean, I mean, that's de definitely a testament to people like yourselves that are doing the, the work behind the scenes to kind of provide us the resources and the education um, so that that does happen. So I definitely appreciate you on um, the show today, Saba, especially because I know it's very late for you in Qatar. Um, Osma, thank you for making this um, happen. And I think a lot of people are going to have a very fun 
Valentine's Day this week. So um, <laughs> they can take some of this knowledge <laughs> and go for uh, go forward with from there. But um, we're going to probably in our show notes have um, your 21 um, videos. Are we going to do that, Osma? And then um, links to um, Saba's book as well and, and where to contact her if you need some more further intimacy work between you and your partner. She is the, the go-to person. So thank you so much, Saba, for being on the show today. Um, and inshallah, everybody has a fabulous uh, Valentine's Day. Assalamualaikum, everyone. Thanks again for joining Zeba and Usman Mommy while Muslim today. Please email us your thoughts or questions and follow us on Facebook and Instagram because this podcast was designed to cater your needs. Make sure you check out the show notes to find the links and resources for this episode. And remember to help a mama out and leave a review of the show as well as to like it on your podcast app of choice because that helps us grow. Tune in next week for another episode of Mommy While Muslim. Assalamu alaikum, everyone.